and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I just want to thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. If you like these conversations, please go over to iTunes and write us a review. Hopefully, you want to give us five stars. We are forever grateful to those of you who have already done so and those who continue to support the podcast by sending out these conversations on social media or sending them to friends via email or a text message. We love that you guys continue to support the podcast. So thank you all for being here today. Now to today's guest. Tisha Penichero is a Portuguese sports agent, and she's also a retired basketball player. When I say that she's a retired basketball player, I'm probably not giving her enough credit. She was just recently nominated to get inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. She's in the Old Dominion University Hall of Fame where she played her college ball. She was a four-time WNBA All-Star and a three-time All-WNBA selection. When she finished her career, she was considered one of the best point guards in the history of women's basketball, and she led the WNBA in all-time assists, where she now is second all-time in career assists. And she won a WNBA championship with the Monarchs, the Sacramento Monarchs, that is, in 2005. She also led Old Dominion to the national championship game when she was playing college basketball there as well. And we'll talk about her upbringing in this conversation today. And you're going to find Tisha to be somebody who's very free, fearless, lives for the present moment, and really focuses on controlling what she can control. So, without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Tisha Penichero. Tisha, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you. I grew up watching you make passes. I think for a lot of men, you were someone that we would watch the women's game, and I think respect really started when we would watch players like you play ball and play it in a style that we emulated on on our black courts and in our playgrounds. And so it's fun to get to chat with you. You were just nominated for the Basketball Hall of Fame, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. I'm sure that's pretty exciting for you. So I'm excited to see where this goes and to learn more about you, the person, and also what made you special as a basketball player. Where I'd love to start is just give us some idea of what life was like for you growing up in Portugal, 
uh, talk about your family, basketball. When did that all come into the picture? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always good to talk about sports, especially basketball, and especially women's basketball. But yeah, I grew up in Portugal. And my dad and my brother played basketball already. I have an older brother, and my dad, after he played, he was a coach. So he pretty much we played already in the house. Me and my brother with a tennis ball in the curtain rod uh, broke everything in, around the house. My mom would get mad. But it was love at first sight. I, I really, truly fell in love with the game about the age of six, seven. Um, used to play in the playground that I had very luckily, like right across from from my house. People that don't know, Portugal is a very small country right next to Spain in Europe. And um, is a soccer dominated. A lot of people probably know Ronaldo because he's our biggest star, and he really has put Port- Portugal on the map, literally. So, um, but yeah, I would go and play um, with the boys. A lot of times, I was the only girl playing in the playground, fighting stereotypes that I still fight today. That you know, girls shouldn't play sports or girls can't play sports. But slowly, I, I started getting accepted, and um, yeah, developed the American dream of coming to the states. Um, but I know basketball um, gave me a lot and uh, more than I could ever expect it. So uh, I'm really glad that one day I picked up a basketball. And why not soccer? Why not football, as they call it? Um, because that's what my dad and my brother played. So if maybe if they played soccer, I would have grown up around soccer and I would have developed a, a love for that game. But, um, you know, it was what I saw every day at the house, my brother going to practice and my, my dad getting ready for, you know, coaching. So that's what I saw around the house. So it was just the, the right thing that, for me to do. And when you're playing against all these boys on the on the playground, what's your mindset like back then? Well, I had to have a lot of patience because at first, you know, they would pick me if maybe they had like seven and then they wanted to play four on four. So be like, okay, you can join us and we just go four on four. So, but I would just have my own ball and sometimes I would just shoot by myself and dribble and just kind of waited on them to call me to to play with them. And then as I got better and I I developed uh, as a player, they they was like, oh, she's not bad. And, you know, we got to the point where I was almost getting picked first. So, uh, yeah, it was just a lot of patience, and I just kind of waited my turn. And what's the age difference between you and your brother? Almost five years, like four and a half. So was he bringing you with him, or was he too much? Was he that much older than you? He wasn't you bringing me with him. I was going with him. <laughs> <laughs> you were attached. He was like, okay, uh, I was really cramping his style because he was with his friends, and I was always trying to tag along. So, But his friends were like, just let her come, you know? And, you know, so that's kind of how, how he was. But, yeah, sometimes he was just like, do you always have to come with us? But, yeah, that's pretty much what I did. And were you basketball obsessed, or did, was there other things that you were also interested in as a kid? No, I was obsessed with it. I mean, obviously, I was a little girl, so I was supposed to play with dolls and everything, but I really just wanted to play basketball from a a very young age. Obviously, I was in school, so I would come home, do my homework real quick, and then just go across the street. You know, this is back in 1980 where I'm playing in Europe where there's you don't have the concerns that you have today about letting your child go outside by herself you know so I'm glad that I grew up in that era and my parents gave me so much freedom sometimes my mom would like have to come and get me I could barely see the ring because it was already nighttime but uh, yeah it was it was great and what values did mom and dad pass down to you? Obviously, dad loved basketball, but what were some of the values that you got from your parents? I think their work ethic. Um, my parents are hardworking people. We're middle class, and they work extremely hard to make ends meet and make sure that we had clothes and shoes and everything that we needed to uh, uh, to be, you know, uh, in society. But just basically their work ethic, always treat people with respect, you know, treat others like you want to uh, be treated. 
but that's pretty much it. I mean, my parents really were my role models uh, growing up. And um, obviously, this is Portugal back in the 80s. We had two channels on TV on Sunday afternoons. That's when the NBA game was um, tape delayed and they, they showed it. And I was in front of the TV to make sure that I watch. I grew up watching Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. Uh, those were my idols back then. I really didn't have any women's sports role models uh, to follow. So my mom was my biggest role model. You've been in the U.S. for a while now, but growing up in Portugal, you mentioned you had freedom to go play. What other cultural items do you think influenced the person that you became? I mean, if you look at the history of our country, we just discover half of the world. You know, we were people without that we really didn't have fear to get on the Atlantic Ocean and go around, and we discover a lot of um, um things that had never been discovered before. So I think in that regard, being Portuguese, I wasn't afraid of risking everything. And uh, my dream of coming to America was just like, okay, I'm gonna, this, I don't know if this is gonna work, it's gonna be a step in the dark. I'm leaving my family, my country, my friends, my culture, everything behind because I'm following my American dream and I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm gonna succeed, but I'd rather go and not succeed than not try. So to me, it was uh, back to my ancestors and even to the, the culture and the history of Portugal. That's kind of what we did. We just got on a boat and went. Um, the only difference is that I got on a plane. <laughs> so you consider yourself to be a risk taker? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't live life with life with regrets. So to me, it's like I'd rather go and fail than not try and, you know, spend my whole life saying what if, you know. So, um, I mean, now, of course, looking back, it was the best decision that I made to come to um, to go to Old Dominion and get a scholarship to, to go um, to school here. But at the end, I mean, I didn't know if I was going to be successful. I mean, and it wasn't easy. There was a lot of days that I, I was homesick, and it's not like today that you can just go and FaceTime your parents. You know, I had to write letters. Uh, that they would get two two weeks later, and all the news were the news were already old because we had already talked on the phone. It was extremely expensive to call, so I, I lived in a different era. So it was very hard to be away from home, and to but at the end of the day, I just knew that I was following my dream, and that um, the good days were better than the, the bad days. So Wild Dominion, how do you end up there? I know they had a history also of basketball, and uh, you guys did quite well while you were there, but but. Where were you looking? What were you thinking? How do you end up at Old Dominion? Uh, kind of a crazy story. I was 16 and I was playing in uh, in Portugal. I was playing actually with my national team and we were playing in Division One competition. And Allison Green, that had just graduated from Dartmouth, she went to play professional in Portugal. And after the game, she was just like, you're pretty good. Don't you want to go to the States? And I'm like, yeah, how do I go about that? It's not like you can go online and do research. You know, the Internet didn't exist back then. So I just gave her the phone number of, you know, my parents' home, the landline, you know, still a rotary phone that we had. So I gave it to her. And two years later, she became the assistant coach at Old Dominion. And she told the head coach about me. They came to Portugal. The recruiting process started. They brought me to Old Dominion for a, a trip. And I was like, okay, I like it. This is amazing. Let's assign my contract, you know, the, the scholarship contract. And I was just like, okay, let's do this. And talk about being an 18-year-old. You, you mentioned maybe some being homesick, writing home. But what was the vision that you had at 18 uh, for yourself? If you could go back to that time mm -hmm. and think about where do you see yourself going? Because I think a lot of times 18-year-olds start to think about well, what do I want to do career-wise? What do I? How do I see myself? If you could go back to that place in that space, I'd be curious what you were thinking. I knew that basketball was a big part of my life, and so my goal when I left Portugal, obviously the WNBA wasn't around when I left. It was in '94, so my goal was to uh, grow as a player, grow as a woman, get my degree, and then go back to Europe and play basketball. 
Meanwhile, while I'm in college, the WNBA was born in 1997, and I was like, hmm, maybe I can play there. So obviously your goals change as, as you progress in life. Um, so then my goal was to play in the WNBA, and I did. I played for 15 years, which is kind of crazy, but and it goes super fast. But yeah, so that was my goal back when I left Portugal, and then I adjusted it. So you knew you wanted to play pro ball. You just assumed that you would have to go back to Europe right. uh, or, or somewhere else to go play it. This opportunity arises in the States. You end up playing in the States and going uh, overseas as well, and we'll get to that. But uh, you end up going to the national championship and, and finishing second. Talk about that experience and taking the team to the national championship. It was tough um, because, first of all, you're so happy to uh, to get to the Final Four and have an opportunity to win, but then to lose – that's probably two games in my life that I would love to have back, you know, and that's one of them. If I could play it again, uh, I would because it still hurts to this day when you are so close to winning a championship and, and you don't win it. Uh, it sticks with you for, for a long time. So obviously we lost to uh, – we beat Stefan in the semifinals um, and they were actually the favorites to win and then we ended up losing to Tennessee uh, with a great Pat Summit um, in the finals. So that's probably one of the – you know, it's a great feeling to be there, and obviously it's great when you look back to, to be one of the top teams in college, but also hurts a little bit that you can finish the, the job. You did finish the job in the WNBA and, and won a championship. I'm just curious, when you think about both of those teams, one that gets to the finals and one that wins the, wins the championship, what made those teams special? What made them championship-caliber teams? Uh, your teammates, your coaches, um, the work that you put in throughout the season to to accomplish that. I mean, that's what everybody plays for is to to win. Uh, I mean, it's cool to have fun, but you do that when you're a little kid. When you're playing in the pros, you, you want to win. I mean, that's your your goal. So to 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 know that all the the hours that you put in to to accomplish that, and then to to be able to do it with your teammates in front of your own crowd in a sellout crowd in Sacramento, it was amazing. So so that's definitely it's the highlight of the of my career winning. A championship for the Sacramento Monarchs back in 2005. What did that feel like? Oh, it was amazing. It was uh, you a little bit of uh, it's a surreal feeling. You, I mean, and plus it was a close game. We were up to one, and we're playing Connecticut, and um, and we up by three. And I actually I'm guarding Nakisha Sales, and she shoots a three, and I'm guarding her. And I just remember looking back, and I'm like, please miss. And uh, she missed at the buzzer, and we win. So it's um it's a little bit of a surreal feeling. Um, but obviously I remember everything that happened that night, the days after, um, because, you know, it's just um, the cherry on top of the cake. It's just like such a relief because you know that uh, you work so hard, you put in so many hours of work to, to get to that, um, to get to the top of the mountain and only one team can do it. And sometimes, you know, one mistake here or there can take away from that, but I'm just glad that we were able to, to do it. So can you take me to the locker room when you guys lose to Tennessee? And I want you to go into the locker room and go into that place and space that you were in then. And then I'm curious to compare that to the locker room and, and what you felt like when you won it all with Sacramento. Honestly, I don't remember much. I remember that um, my coach took me out um, with a few seconds to go and I just got on a bench and I, pull, I put a towel over my head and I just start crying. And, uh, <laughs> and my teammate, Mary Andrade, she walked me back to the locker room and I honestly don't remember anything that happened. And it's kind of funny how, you, how you're brain probably shuts down, um, you know, the bad memories that you have. I'm pretty sure that I had to do a press conference. Uh, I don't even know how I did it because I was a mess. 
uh, but I don't remember. I don't recall anything from that, you know, and, you know, compared to Sacramento and, you know, we got in there. And obviously this is uh, 2005, so there's way more footage. So I was able to relive that through pictures and video or whatever. But um, and I never watched the, the other game. Never in my life. I never went back and watched the, the game that we lost to Tennessee. Uh, but I have watched the, the game after we won. Uh, but, yeah, in the locker room, we just go in. There's bottles of champagne everywhere. You just um, just spray champagne and just it's just uh, euphoria that, uh, that that goes through your body. Yeah, you're smiling now. You can feel it, right? Like, you yeah. can still feel that feeling. You said there was another time where you, like, there, was a, there were two times where you felt like you wish you had it back. What was the other one? 2006, so we could have been back-to-back WNBA champions, and we were playing the Detroit Shock, and we're up to one. We have almost same scenario as the previous year. We have uh, Game Four at at Sacramento, playing in front of our fans, and we think that we're going to get back-to-back champions, and we lost, so we had to go back to Detroit to play Game Five, and we went, we ended up losing. So um, yeah, so those are the two games that I remember the most of you know marking my career in a negative way. But do you remember being in the locker room after that game? Same thing, crying. <laughs> you just sort of push it to the side. Yeah, you do. You know, I I remember the vice president of the WNBA coming and you know trying to console me and giving me some encouraging words, but I, I was really devastated. Plus, I didn't think I played my best, so it's even harder when you um when you lose and you you don't perform at your best. You mentioned being fearless earlier. How would you cultivate that fearlessness when you're on a big stage? It's basketball. It's like you, you practice so hard every day. So when you get to the game, it should be easy because you, you practice every possible scenario that you're going to encounter in the game. So it's just about confidence. And you. it's a team sport, so you know that your teammates have your back. Um, it's different when you have to play tennis or you have to run a sprint and you buy yourself out there. So, uh, And, you know, the confidence is just built, like, over the years that with everything that you, you do in practice and you, you, how you prepare. One of the frameworks that I leverage with my clients is this idea that the mindset for preparation should actually be different than the mindset for performance. So humble in preparation when we're watching film, when we're learning new stuff, let's be humble. But when we step between the lines, let's have a little bit of arrogance, Mm -hmm. swagger, confidence, whatever you want to use. Let's be perfectionist in preparation and make sure we can do everything. But when we cross over the lines, let's be adaptable. Let's be very analytical and really analyze things in preparation, but then let's trust our instincts in performance. So there's a shift that I notice when I study a lot of the top performers or when I work with elite performers, their ability to be in this preparation mind, but then not bring perfection or humility or analysis into their performance mind. How do you make sense of that? Does that sound similar to how you thought about preparation, how you thought about performance? And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. I mean, being humble is super important, but sometimes, like you said, you have to cross the line a little bit because arrogance and almost like extra confidence, I don't like to call it arrogance because that's kind of a tough word for me because I don't like arrogant people. Uh, But when you play, sometimes you can come across as that, especially if people don't really know who you are because your confidence goes to a level and it might exceed the level that you are comfortable with. So it crosses borderline, you know, into arrogance and the people that are watching, especially if they're rooting against you, it can come across that way. 
But you look at all the greats in the game, uh, they sometimes they look like they cross their line. You look at Kobe and Michael Jordan and LeBron James, and you, you see um, sometimes a little bit of that. But uh, yeah, it's part of the it's part of being who you are on the court. And sometimes you let your emotions get the best of you, especially when you've worked so hard and you're trying to get to a goal. So it's a, it's important that you know you try to like you say stay humble. Um, but there's I'm sure parts of the the game that um, you know you come across as being arrogant. And I would even say an inner arrogance. So it doesn't even necessarily mean yeah. that you're flashing your muscles and you're flexing or you're talking trash. Like I look at Kawhi Leonard's style. Like he's not gonna do that stuff. But you better believe like he wants that ball in his hands. He believes in himself and and he can he can play. Yeah, but it's not the norm. I mean, right. he's like I think you don't see many guys like that with. I honestly, I don't know how he does it to keep his emotions under control so much. You never see him do a fist bump. I mean, he's playing in the NBA Finals, and he's the go-to guy. And, like, just last game, he scored nine points in a row, and you don't see him smiling. You don't see him do a fist bump. You don't see him raise the roof. You don't see anything out of him. He's just, like, like a flatline, you know, which is so hard to see in sports. You see every kinds of emotions. Usually, like, people's emotions is like a crazy graphic, right? And he's, like, so consistent with his emotions. And honestly, I don't think he's the norm. I think he's somebody that you look at him like, this is a case study because it's like, how does he keep his emotions under control all the time? I agree with you. And I think there's a misconception, and especially with athletes, that says stay away from emotions. Like, coaches would say, I'd rather have the guy that's even keel like Kawhi than the guy like Russ Westbrook who's going to Mm -hmm. go up and down. But when I work with athletes, we often talk about well, what emotions do you want to bring to the game? And you can bring emotions without being emotional. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue that athletes turn into is when they become emotional. And you can see it with someone like Draymond Green in the finals where now he's one technical away from getting suspended. Yeah. So, But you want Draymond to play with his emotion. That's part of what makes mm-hmm. him special at six foot five or six foot six and he can play the center position so i'm curious going back to you you played with a flamboyant style with a flashy style with uh, a style that maybe others would be afraid to to play with how did you think about your own emotions and, and how did you lever that uh, leverage that when you were playing ball I think the most, sometimes emotions are hard to control. They just come naturally. So you make a basket or your teammate makes a crazy, you know, three-pointer, and that just comes out naturally. It's I think it's much harder for you to try to control your emotions. And, you know, when I play, I just have fun. You know, maybe some people thought that all the assists or whatever could have been showboating. I really, it really wasn't. Um, I just really like to have fun and play free. And I had coaches and teammates that um, they gave me the green light and let me play like I was in the playground. And that's when I played my best. But at the end of the day, your emotions come out and sometimes you don't know they're coming, but it's just a reaction to whatever happened at the time. And, um, you know, like Draymond, I mean, the, the, the team needs that from him you know like he gets the team going by his emotions and sometimes they're over the top and he knows that Uh, I was watching him an interview the other day and he said that he was watching himself uh, on tape and he's he was disgusted with the way that he's complaining about every call and the way he was acting and sometimes if he gets to that point you have to check yourself and you have to keep your emotions under control especially if you get to the point where you're going to hurt your team with technicals and suspensions so but I think the positive emotions especially more than the negative ones are the ones that come out naturally and if you know you are a player or um, that you the bad emotions can come out you, you definitely have to try to control them and you said you just try to have fun when you were playing and play like you'd be playing on the playground but that's what we would see the fans take us to when no one's watching and you're in a gym and you're working on your game what would that look like same thing you know I mean obviously 
if you just shoot in the basket in a ba- in a basketball, you obviously can pass the ball to anybody, right? So you just do more dribbling and shooting. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I just always try to have fun and you know realize that I had the best job in the world, and that's um, to to be a professional basketball player. And you ended up ending your career leading the WNBA in all time assists. What about passing did you love? What what about that act was special for you? I mean, I was a point guard, so and I feel like these days, when you look at point guards, they're a little different. So I was definitely what you can call it, an old school point guard, where I, I like to get my teammates involved, and uh, passing was part of that. And um, you know, I just enjoyed passing the ball and making my teammates happy and give them easy points. And sometimes um, I felt like I was it was the best play and sometimes it wasn't the best play. Sometimes I was the one open and I was, you know, trying to force a pass. So to me, the, the most important thing was trying to decide when was my turn to shoot or when, um, you know, my teammates were really open. But at the end of the day, you know, all I wanted to do was to have fun and win. What makes a great passer? You know, I think um, anticip- anticipatory vision. I think I, I was blessed with that. I, I think I saw things before they, they developed. Uh, I think it was a gift that I had. I don't think it's something that you can really, really practice. I think awareness to know where your teammates are uh, and obviously chemistry because um, you have to have good chemistry with with your teammates to know where they're going to be, where they like the ball. So all of those things just, just practice. And you mentioned there's things that maybe you can't practice and uh, potentially the anticipation, the feel for the game. But as I'm imagining you as a six-year-old bouncing a tennis ball and doing things, do you think the fact that you grew up like that helped you or if you had grown up here and maybe been in uh, organized sports from a young age maybe it would have ended up differently how do you think about how you were cultivated as a basketball Uh, player I mean I grew up playing in the playground and playing with boys most of the time so I think you know they're stronger more athletic sometimes they come to block your shot and I was just try to avoid that so I think that's how I developed my passing skills was to um, you know playing with the boys in the playground and as a point guard there's responsibility that also comes with leadership the balls in your hands often calling plays what makes a great leader <laughs> doing it by uh, by example uh, a lot of leaders I mean I always, always try to be the first one in practice the last one to leave if there was a suicide or a sprint I always try to be the the first one and I think you, you gain the respect from your teammates I never was a loud leader. Uh, I prefer the one-on-one uh, type of situation. And then knowing your teammates, you know, maybe a teammate, if you yell at her, that's going to get the job done. And sometimes, you know, if you yell at another teammate, you know, she's going to shut down and, and not respond. So I think that was the most important thing for me is like to really know my teammates and, and know how to lead them to, to get the most out of them. You mentioned playing for 15 years. You also played for the national team. What was it like to represent your country? Is the ultimate um, goal, uh, very a pride moment when you hear the national anthem and you, you know that you're representing a whole country. I mean, obviously, Portugal is, is a small country, but we, we take a lot of pride in uh, being Portuguese. And um, I, I didn't play as many times as I would like because a lot of the games and the tournaments were in the summertime, and I would choose the WNBA over going to Europe. I mean, I would miss probably like 10 games if I decided to, to go play with my national team. And uh, competing in Europe is tough because we, we didn't have the power to compete against, you know, other uh, countries like Spain or Italy, so Russia. So we would like, we always ended up short. So I never had to, had a chance to play in the Olympics, for instance, which was a dream of mine, but I knew it wasn't realistic. But, um, you know, playing for your country is the ultimate, uh, you know, joy that you have because you know that, you know, you're putting those colors on and watching um, uh, a nation behind you. You mentioned the national anthem. I'm curious when you are playing for your country and the national anthems 
being sung, what's going on through your mind? I just sing it along and you get ready for, you know, the tip off. You wonder, uh, I always try to represent my country, especially being here and, uh, you know, make my country proud and uh, my family proud. Those were the two things that I wanted to do. And and I think uh, I did that. You know, I know my my parents and my family, they're extremely proud of me. And I know that I always try to, especially being a women's basketball player growing up in Portugal, to, um, you know, to make my country proud. You mentioned being a women's basketball player. Talk about women's sports, women's basketball. Uh, before we fired up the mics, I said, is there anything you want to talk about? And there seemed to be a, a pride factor in uh, also representing women. And you look, you're at the beginning stages of the WNBA. I mean, you were right there at the beginning, and it's it's still going. We, yeah. It's still I mean, going it's and growing. it's been 23 years, which is crazy just to even say that number. Time fi- flies for real. But... um. Yeah, we have taken a lot of strides. Uh, move, I mean, since Title IX, women sport in sports have taken off, but <laughs> I think there's still so much more room to grow. Uh, we talk about diversity. We talk about gender equality, uh, equal pay. There's so many things that can still, you know, improve. And the thing that the haters, you know, sometimes I get on social media and I see the comments, and it really blows my mind. You know, I don't. I'm not a fan of hockey or baseball. I don't follow their accounts. I don't take you know, my precious time to go into their accounts and bash those players and the league. And it's crazy to me how how many people do that, you know? Like, I see comments in the NBA page, in the WNBA page of, you know, the typical common, you know, go back to the kitchen and go make me a sandwich. And I'm like, what is this? You know, it's 2019 and we still have to fight all of these stereotypes about women in sports and women's basketball. So that really bothers me. Uh, And I think we just have to continue to fight the good fight. It's interesting. I heard Abby Wambach uh, speak on a podcast recently. And for those who don't know Abby, she's the all-time leader in goals. I think she has more goals uh, in international play than Ronaldo and Messi combined. It's something like ridiculous stats. Um, And she brought up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of before. Because we talk about dollars that are invested in sports and how we look at them. And she brought up the MLS and she said, you know, Major League Soccer was losing and bleeding money for years and owners had to infuse money into it and prop it up. And the dollars didn't equate. It didn't make sense. Um, And she said they did that because they were investing in the game and hoping that in the long run it would pay dividends. And now the MLS is finally starting to, to really take shape. Uh, but it's been a long pull and there's been times where it looked like they won't survive mm-hmm. and there have been a lot of ownership changes because there's a lot of money that had to be lost in that investment. And you look at the WNBA or you look at the National Women's Soccer League uh, here as well in the U.S. And yeah, the, the dollars aren't there yet. But Abby's point was, yeah, but people should be investing in this game that in the long run, it's going to be there. And her point was they're not we're not getting the dollars in that we need mm-hmm. in the same way that you see Major League Soccer getting the dollars right. in. Um, and, and it was an interesting perspective that I hadn't a thought of because, yeah, from an equality argument, people say, well, they don't bring in as many dollars, so they shouldn't earn as many dollars. And her point was, just like venture capital, most companies now, they lose money, they don't get as many dollars out, but people are investing in it because either they can get acquired or they'll invest it in the long run and then eventually uh, the scales will tip. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the state of women's sports or women's basketball and, and how you think about that from similar to Abby's perspective. 
I agree with her 100%. I think companies are still scared of investing because I, I think they're scared there's not going to be a return. So, you know, it's that's just math. You know, you don't want to, just like when you buy your own stocks, you want to go invest in something when you're going to be, you know, see a big return. But at the end of the day, if you never do it, then you're never going to see a return and we're never going to move forward. And I just feel like women in sports is growing tremendously and it's not just basketball. You talk about soccer, you talk about tennis, uh, swimming, gymnastics. Um, I mean, we are all over the place and it's growing the talent is there and you know the people that a lot of things a lot of times I think the people that hate if you can use that word are people that never seen us play you know and they just they just um, don't have a life and they probably go to YMCA and shoot some hoops and they can't even shoot but you know like um, if you go and you take a chance on us and even you watch us on TV or you go to watch a game live I'm pretty sure that you're if you have an open mind I, I think you will be surprised of uh, the talent that is there for, for women's basketball and for other sports and you're an agent now and so one of the things I'm curious to learn a little more about is the landscape of women's basketball mm -hmm. and so for those that don't know give everyone some idea of what the women's basketball players most of them do when they're playing in the WNBA and then the WNBA season ends um, I think the the normal average sports fan doesn't really understand what these women are doing to have a professional basketball career. Nobody does, unless you really have been in their shoes, which I have, because seriously, it's uh, nonstop. Um, you finish the WNBA season in September, and you might have five days off, and you have to head overseas to play, and you finish overseas, and you might have uh, two days off, depending on uh, how far your team goes overseas, and you have to get back to the WNBA. So you pretty much play all year round. There's no rest whatsoever, and just not physically, but mentally, it's exhausting. But we know that this is what we have to do in order to, you know, really have a career. Um, the WNBA, the dollars that they pay right now, they're still not where they should be or that we would like them to be. So a lot of the, the players play all year round because, you know, overseas there there's more opportunities to make more money. And when you were doing that, what would you do mentally to make sure that you're where you needed to be when it came time for, for the games? Try to rest, eat right, drink a lot of water, you know, do everything that you can. And um, sometimes it's a day off and you feel guilty because maybe you played bad the night before and you want to go and get some shots up. But really learn how to listen to your body and take care of your body. Do all the stretching, the ice baths that nobody wants to do. So it just really uh, comes with growth and comes with age. And to really try to prolong your career as much as possible, you know that you have to do those things. What were you like when you were 23 compared to when you were 33? Just more aware of my time and who I gave it to and just um, uh, important to, you know, do little things. Maybe the I ate different uh, for sure. Um, so, like, I don't know, just you, there's a maturity that comes with it that you understand that uh, you have to do certain things in order to um, prolong your, your career. And what were your pregame habits? What, what would you look like an hour and a half before the game started? Uh, what would you do to get yourself ready for, for a game? Uh, game day, you just go to shoot around. So you have maybe an hour in the gym. Um, do treatment if you have to. Have a nice meal. Uh, get a nap. Take a shower. And, you know, go back to the game and do your routine prior to the game, which is a lot of shooting and stretching and, uh, you know, just getting ready for for the game. And mentally, like, trying to envision who you play. Do Watch the scouting report and read it. Uh, watch films, so do everything that you have to do mentally to prepare. Would you visualize, would you actually try to see where people are going to be and where you want to be, and would you spend any time actually going through that practice? Yeah, I mean, I think that's important, especially in the WNBA, you play the same team so many times, so 
uh, a lot of times I had to guard the the best player on the other team in the wing. So I would, you know, envision, uh, you know, her moves and how to stop them so uh, I could be, you know, ready when the, when it was game time. What was it like for you when you were playing overseas compared to playing in the WA, NBA? Were there differences? Was it similar? What was it like? Uh, the WNBA is the, the most competitive and the best league in the world. So obviously, uh, every every game is competitive, and you never know. I mean, you can win t- against any team, but you can also lose. The traveling was really um, challenging as well because sometimes you have three, four games a week compared to one, maybe two games a week overseas. Uh, but overseas, I, I usually played on the top team, so there was games that you could, you know, maybe play. 50% of what you could play and still win the game but in the WNBA your focus and um, you know everything that you gave it to be 100% every game because it was very challenging what do you think the future is going to look like for women's basketball do you think it's ever going to be you know the best players are in the WNBA and they're they're staying I know some of the best players are not going overseas anymore but what do you envision the future of the WNBA maybe 20 years from now well this year the we have to get a new CBA going in October. Um, and I know that the players are uh, looking for a little bit of better salaries and things of that nature. So I just really hope that the game continues to grow, that um, the talent is there. I mean, it's important for little kids these days, little girls, young girls, to uh, when they're like 10, 12, 13 years old, they actually have a chance to, to go to the games and watch women play uh, live and watch them on TV or, or even on their phone. There are so many ways to watch it and to um to, to be that we are role models for those young girls. So for those young girls to continue to work hard, to, to be a part of the WNBA, that the WNBA continues to grow, hopefully, uh, expansion. Uh, I mean, we have 12 teams, which creates about 144 jobs, which I don't think is enough. There's a lot of people out there that don't have jobs, um, but they are so talented. And they, they definitely belong in the WNBA. So in a perfect world, I would like to see four more teams. So if we're talking about in 20 years, you know, if, instead of having 12 teams, uh, maybe 16, maybe 18, and everybody makes a little bit more money and the game continues to grow. You mentioned jobs. What has drawn you to, to become an agent and, and why go into that, that space? I just wanted to stay close to the game, paying it forward. Um, this is what... Um, Basketball gave me more than I could ever imagine, and this is my way of giving it back to the game and help young women to transition from the college level to the pros. I mean, I literally have been in their shoes and everything they're going to go through, I've been through it. So I'm um, not just looking at myself as an agent, but as a mentor, um, can give them advice by experience. So I just want to, you know, the women game to women's game to continue to grow and for my clients to have their best careers they can on and off the court. Why not coach? I've coached all my life as a point guard, so I didn't want to have the same routine, you know, so I was like, I don't want to coach. And what have you learned going off the court and being more, uh, I don't want to say behind the scenes, but playing a different role? What have you learned? I just watch the game in a different way, more like as a fan now. I'm not talking about, oh, they are doing a pick and roll and they're guarding in this way. So I'm not really, I would have to turn the switch on, you know, and I'm glad that I'm relaxed and I can just go and support my clients and just watch the game as a fan. Uh, I love it when I go to a gym, to an arena, and it's packed and people are there to support the WNBA. Uh, but, yeah, I just look at the game in a different way, way more relaxed. I, you know, I, I'm like, I'm glad I don't have to watch film and study and get prepared. And, you know, there was a lot of work. What sort of things do you do now to make sure that you're at your best from a career standpoint? Uh, I just communicate, you know, with my clients. Um, 
especially overseas, you every day I'm on the phone trying to find them the best jobs possible, put them in good situations where they're going to be happy. That's very important when you're going to be away from your family, especially the rookies. They are their first time overseas. Put them in a situation where they they enjoy. Um, people don't know, but overseas basketball and a lot of these clubs are not very reliable. They're not very professional. So trying to deal with uh, with clubs that are reliable, that pay on time, that actually play. Uh, you know, the contract sometimes is just a piece of paper because nobody follows it. So it's very frustrating, and sometimes being an Asian can be um, <laughs> can be challenging. So again, just trying to deal with uh, with clubs that are um, reliable and put my clients in situations where they're going to be happy and successful. What are the similarities between being a great point guard uh, and being a great agent, and what are the differences? I'm still leading, um, trying to be uh, it's still a team. Uh, I'm looking at my clients, and I'm looking at our agency, and we are a big family. So at the end of the day, I'm just still trying to assist in a different way. Uh, like I mentioned before, just putting them in good situations for uh, for them to have great careers and to be happy. If you put your, your client in a bad position overseas, uh, most likely they're not going to want to go back or they want to leave, and that's not good for everybody. Um, and the differences, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's I'm just I'm not on the court, you know, so I'm doing the same thing, but assisting, but off the court is a different type of assist. When you're watching them play, <laughs> I would imagine as someone who had the ball in their hands for for so long. Uh, you don't have the ball in your hands. So you said it's kind of like being a fan. Uh, what does that feel like to not be in control and not have any say in the matter? Oh, no, I'm I'm at peace, uh, 100%. As soon as I retire, you know, I retire on my own terms, and I had a, an amazing career, more, I mean, exceeded all my expectations. So I'm 100% at peace. I mean, I, I don't even miss the game like that. So I'm, I'm good. I mean, people are like, you don't play anymore? I'm like, no, I'm good. <laughs> so you don't play pickup, anything? No, I, I was very blessed. I didn't have any major injuries. I'm not trying to do now. I'm 44 years old, but I play all my life, so I'm good now. <laughs> well, I tore my ACL four, four and a half years ago. There's something, I mean... Uh, there's something that happens when you start getting your 30s. Yeah, where... because you're <laughs> mentally you think you can still do the same things and you're not in shape like I was back then and you feel like you can still do the same things and then when injuries happen, so I'm good. I I watch every game. Sometimes I have my iPad, my computer, my phone going in at the same time. I try to watch every game, WNBA and overseas, uh, give feedback to the players. But yeah, I'm good. I don't want to play anymore. What did you love about playing ball? It's a fun sport, you know, it's a team sport, fun, you know, you just grow up and you love it and you just have fun with it, so why not? And do you get that fun and that joy in, in other areas of your life? What do you what do you do to you know, if if you got some free time, like what what are you what are you doing with your travel, free space? go to the beach, read. I mean, there's a lot of things that you can do. Go to the movies, spend time with your family. I have a little dog, you know, spend time with my dog and just uh, you know, just enjoy life. I'm homebody. So to me, being home on the couch, it's perfect. You mentioned peace, like you're at peace with your basketball career. And but I would imagine fifteen years of competing at a really high level, at the highest level you can compete at. Is the competitive spirit something that you still have in other areas of your life, or have you sort of quieted that down a little bit? I mean, you quiet it down, but I still compete. You know, we're trying to sign the best players, and there's other agencies and agents that want to sign them. So in a way, you still compete. But um, like I said, it was 15 years of competition and being, you know, fighting every day on the court. So I'm good now to not to have to do that anymore. And you became an American citizen a, a few years back. Talk about what that was like for you. Mm, I mean, 
when I came in 94, I really didn't think that I was going to stay this long and actually apply for American citizenship. But because of my line of work, it just makes sense that I'm here. And, you know, it just doesn't make sense to be on a working visa or on a green card. So I applied for a green card. And after five years, I could apply for citizenship. So I did. And, uh, you know, I love this country. It gave me a lot of opportunities. So, but I definitely still love Portugal and that's what runs in my veins is the Portuguese blood and so now I have dual citizenship and I'm okay with that. Awesome. Uh, You also have a passion for the Special Olympics. Can you talk about that and and why, why are you passionate about that? Um, probably started in uh, Old Dominion. We always had um, every year we, 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 we did an appearance with the Special Olympics and you know sometimes you just you look at them and you'd be like you know, it's an unfortunate situation. They were born like that. And, um, you know, it could have been me, you know. So you just just really try to make, <laughs> it's funny because you go to make their day and I always left feeling so blessed because they're just so happy. You know, it's just happy people. They don't look at them as, you know, having um, any type of problems. They just go and they just smile all the time and they just want to play basketball. And uh, so every time that we went, um, it just really grew on me and it just made you think sometimes how blessed your life is because you're healthy and there's so many people in the world that are not, you know, and sometimes they're born like that and there's uh, nothing they could do that was just the hand they were dealt. So, um, you know, it just makes you appreciate life and, you know, the blessings that you have. You mentioned blessings. Do you have any spiritual framework, any sort of religion? How do you think about uh, spirituality. I'm good on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm spiritual. I, I believe in a, a higher force above all of us. I pray, but I'm not, I don't go to church. I'm not opposed to going, but it's not like, um, you know, I do something uh, on the regular. Awesome. And as far as your job today, what do you see yourself doing 10 years from now, 20 years from now? How do you think about the future? I don't. I live each day by the day. I don't really think about the future. I don't know if I'm going to be here in 10 years. So I enjoy the present. I enjoy each day that I have, every breath that I take. And when tomorrow comes, I'll figure out tomorrow. And when next week comes, I'll figure out next week. I don't really, uh, I've never been a person to think about too much of the future. You know, I mean, obviously you have to plan for the future, but I don't think about it. Are you an optimist? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because there's threads that I'm I'm feeling from you, right? There's There's a fearlessness. There's a presence, like I want to be grounded in the present moment. And then there's this optimism. There is this almost c'est la vie, right? There's yeah. like Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, listen, I'll, one of the things that I always say is like control what you can control, you know, and what you can control, what you're going to worry about is like carrying an umbrella all day because you think it might rain. So I don't think about that. I mean, if it rains, then I'll go get the umbrella and I'll open it up. But I'm not going to carry an umbrella, you know, thinking that it might rain all day. So I just really, like, enjoy living my life. I love my friends. I love my family. And I just live a quiet, peaceful life. And But, yeah, I don't. I try not to worry about it, especially if there's something that I can't control. Was that something that you think you were taught from a young age? Was it something you learned when you became an adult? Was it something you think you were born with? How do you think about that? Uh, I think it kind of developed a little bit. Um, I, I used to be a like, super sour loser. Every time we lose a game, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I would get in the car. My parents would like ne- not even like talk to me because they knew that I was in a bad mood. And then I had two really good friends that were diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and they were like my age. So it just made me look at life totally different. I'm like, so I'm mad because I had five turnovers. We lost the game. And, you know, so-and-so have to get up and go to chemo tomorrow. So... Yeah, it just puts everything in perspective. It makes you enjoy life and really <laughs> count your blessings. I mean, it's it's true. So um, I think that 
probably that scenario really just made me think more of you know don't don't worry about tomorrow just worry about today how old were you when that when that happened with your friends uh one of them i uh, was actually in college she was my equipment manager in college we're still really good friends uh, these days um and so i was like 21 and the other one i was already playing in the wmbi so it was probably like 26 27 and you said one of them's still alive did the other they one no they both they both alive they both like in my life and you know they completely fighters and you know they looked at us just like oh i'm going to the grocery store like when they had to go get chemo and to me it was just like wow you know and their fight and the way they looked at it it was incredible and it just you know really opens your eyes and in your heart to a lot of things that are going on in your life so there's the gratitude piece that it sounds like gratitude also helps you put things in perspective yeah. and see the world a certain way and gratitude's often linked to optimism if we mm-hmm. want to train optimism we often will figure out ways to train gratitude. Do you do anything intentionally to make sure that your mind is where it needs to be? No. I mean, I think it's just um, the the consistency of my thoughts are always trying to be in a positive uh, way, in a positive light. So that's, I don't do any training for that. I think it just comes naturally. What do you do when you have negative thoughts? I try to block them. I mean, if, if it's something negative, again, can I do something about it? So do it. If you can't do it, then just let it go. And, you know, it's going to be okay. So your internal dialogue is, can I control this? Is there anything I can do? If yes, then go do something. If not, then let it sort of brush off the shoulder. Exactly. And is that the way you approach basketball as well? Yeah. I mean, later in my career, like, you know, that after is like when you the light goes on and, you know, you lose a game and you just, then you realize, you know, it's just basketball. There's another game to play tomorrow, you know, and somebody's taking their last breath. So when you think you have a bad, somebody has a way worse. So I just start looking at life that way and it kind of worked for me. You mentioned being sour when you were younger with losses. Do you remember anything specifically that mom and dad said to you? Or was it just looking more broadly and looking around and being like, oh, wait, this person's going through this, this person's going through that. Uh, Just take us that space because a lot of people struggle with that. Like a lot of people um, become very self-critical. They go down the slippery slope. You know, you work with, you work with I'm a a Virgo, I'm a perfectionist. So even if, you know, we won the game and I played well, I knew that there was something that I could have done better. You know, maybe I missed three free throws, you know, and my dad would be always the first one to say that, you know, like, so... They also wanted perfection, you know, from me, but never in a in a crazy way. And every time I would lose a game, they knew, like, okay, let's not talk to her because she's in a bad mood. So, you know, I didn't want to be rude, so I would just not talk. But how do you not bring that perfectionism into the game, right? Because if I'm a perfectionist, and I've, most pro athletes that I've worked with will say, oh, Brian, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. But then you watch them play, and sometimes that perfectionism perfectionism creeps in and it really hinders them but other times they shift out of the perfectionism because they understand you're going to turn the ball over a great point guard Mm -hmm. turns the ball over two three times a game right Uh, especially with someone that took risks like Mm -hmm. you did Uh, I don't know how many turnovers you averaged but I bet it was a decent amount Um, so how did you shift out of the perfectionism because a lot of people can't do that so if I had a turnover I had to get a steal that's how I cope with that. So if you lose it, you get it back. So if I had two turnovers, I had to have three steals. So that's kind of how I, you know, worked it out in my mind. So you would do that mentally. Oh, yeah. I told them, all right, I better go get it back. Yep. Awesome. And and what about like missed shots? 
I mean, there's another one, you know. So, and sometimes, you know, like that was the the thing about me being a point guard and being such a good passer. Sometimes your biggest attribute is also your biggest, you know, weakness because I passed the ball so well. Sometimes it took, um, you know, I passed on shots that I was the one open um, or I would miss shots or I would like not be ready to shoot because I was looking who to pass to. So, and those are all things that I was aware of. So, um, yeah, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a mental game that you have to play with yourself. You're going to laugh at me, but I still play Wednesday night basketball, even though I tore my ACL four and a half, almost five years ago. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hit or miss as far as when I go, but I played last night, so I'm feeling actually pretty good. <laughs> and I, I was not shooting well last night. I played point guard, uh, not by any reason other than I'm really short, and that's the position that I had to play when I was growing up. But I loved passing, and I like still to this day, like I can't do much, but I can pass. Yeah, uh, my shot's not really there anymore. Certainly, there's really not much athleticism there. <laughs> there wasn't much to begin with, but I'm working with what I got. Um, but last night I after the first two games, I realized I was playing with a lot of good shooters. And I said to them, I go, I'm just going to get paint touches, dribble, penetrate, and I'm going to kick it. So you just be ready. Cause I'm mm-hmm. going to give you the freaking ball. And, uh, and I, I, but I, I did things like if I miss a shot, I'll clap and then I'll, and then I'll release that shot. Cause I know, even though I want to pass first at the end of the day, if the ball rotates and I'm open for three and I don't shoot that ball, the whole flow is going to get messed up. Mm-hmm. And if I can't at least be a threat from three, and this is in, you're welcome to join us any anytime you want to go play. You can <laughs> kick our asses pretty well. Um, but uh, anytime I, I don't shoot that shot, then the defense can just play off me and then our spacing's all screwed up. Um, so I'm just curious if you would do anything to recover your mind or hit the reset button if you were struggling it could even be at halftime or or any processes that you did to make sure that you were back to that present moment yeah I mean a lot of times you just gotta possibly envision the ball going in the next shot and just keep it moving you know and not to you know like I said I was such a perfectionist you want to do everything right but that's impossible so just really have short-term memory with everything that you do, the good or the bad, because it can creep up on you and kind of hurt you the next move or the next game. Would you leverage your perfectionism when you were practicing or you were preparing? Was that helpful for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about that. I mean, again, if you had to shoot whatever whatever drill, I mean, you're just a competitor and you're a perfectionist, so you try to do everything the right way, but sometimes it's impossible. So you just try to do as, as much as you can as to as as perfection <laughs> to the perfection that you can do at the time. So, but yeah, I mean, when you go and then you put defense on it and then it gets even harder. So at the end of the day, listen, I just wanted to win. And, you know, like I, like I said before, just um, if I didn't play well, uh, and we won. It was good. The the bad part was when I didn't play well and we lost. Anything else you want to give a megaphone to? Uh, anything you're passionate about? Um, any organizations you're involved with? Um, anything you want to just promote? No, I do a lot of stuff back home. No, I don't do much here. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people do stuff here, So, but there's not a lot of people do stuff back home. So I, I do some camps and uh um, you know, just try to encourage young women, um, young little ladies to, to play basketball and to play sports, to stay active. So that's my main thing is for women's basketball to continue to grow and for little girls to believe in themselves, to have big dreams. And, you know, I'm a perfect example growing up in a small town in Portugal and um, my career took off because I, I believed in my dreams and I went after them. I chased them. So if it happened to me, it can happen to anybody. If you were talking to an eight-year-old girl right now, and she had dreams of playing pro basketball, what would you say to her? 
practice, you know. Uh, I mean, first of all, you have to have a passion. I, I love the game. That's why I, I knew I was going to be good at it. Because to be good at something, you have to truly love it. And I just feel like this generation sometimes, their love is a little uh, blurry because there's there's so many distractions. So for you to love something, whether it's, you know, animals and you want to be a veterinary, whatever your passion is, follow it. You know, dream big and then work hard to, to, to those dreams to become reality. Awesome. And when you were a kid, the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame didn't exist. The WNBA didn't exist. As you look back on what you've accomplished and from a basketball standpoint, from a basketball career standpoint, how do you make sense of, of what your accolades It's have? crazy. <laughs> it's really crazy. When I left Portugal in 94, I really didn't think basketball was going to take me this far. And not just accolades, but you know, places that I've been around the world, um, people that I've met, money that I've made, you know, it's really uh, surreal a little bit sometimes when I when I look back um, growing up in the streets of Portugal and uh, I really ne never thought that my career was going to, you know, be like this and exceeded all my expectations. But again, I did it with a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifices. So I I'm happy. And uh, if I went back, I would take every step the same way. It's really interesting because you have this combination of visualizing the future and dreaming, mm -hmm. but also being really grounded in the present. And so you have both of those that I'm hearing. You'd say I'd visualize a shot or I'd visualize what the game's going to look like. So you would use like this creative ability to see things in the future. But then when you got in the actual act, it was like, hey, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to play. And I've done some work with musicians and actors. And it's one of the things that we talk about with them. An actor, they go over all their lines. They need to know exactly where they're supposed to be if they're on Broadway. Where do I need to be on stage? I need to know my lines. And then when I'm on stage, if it seems like it's rehearsed, I'm not acting. Mm -hmm. And so they actually have to let go of all that and just be in that present moment, that present space. As I'm hearing you talk, there is this artistry that is starting to get clear for me as far as how you would approach thinking about the game. But then when you're actually in it, you're you're playing um, almost. Yeah, and when the ball goes up, you just relax and you just play the game. You can't. At play, it's, you know, it's the way it goes. In a basketball game, in sports, you don't know. It's the best reality show that <laughs> is real, real. Like, you don't know what's going to happen, so you just have to adjust as, as you go through it. Yeah. We play basketball. We don't, we don't work basketball, right? Mm -hmm. You have to play it. I often love this phrase, like, think like a pro, but play like a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of times pros will try to play like a pro, and they'll tense up. Um, and so if you can tap into like the 10 year old version of yourself, it can be really, really useful. You're on Twitter. Uh, mm -hmm. talk about where people can find you on Twitter or anywhere on the web or, or learn more about SIG sports or whatever it is. Well, as long as you can spell my name, you can find me. So I want to Google that first. <laughs> so if we just put in your name, we'll yeah, find Tisha you on Twitter. Yeah. Awesome. Tisha, thank you so much. You're super clear about how you want to live life. Um, you're super free. Uh, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of clutter in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been a joy getting to know you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It's basketball. It's like you, you practice so hard every day. So when you get to the game, it should be easy because you, you practice every possible scenario that you're going to encounter in the game. So it's just about confidence. And you it's a team sport, so you know that your teammates have your back. Um, it's different when you have to play tennis or you have to run a sprint and you by yourself out there. So, uh, and you know, the confidence is just built like over the years that uh, with everything that you, you do in practice and you, you, how you prepare.